0: All right, all right. Good evening, awakening. Good evening. Good to be with you. Um, I know it's a little chilly in here, but it's actually a lot warmer than it was last week. Who was here last week and braved the cold with us? You could actually see the steam from your voice. Hey, I thought that was a great question, Jay asked. Uh, What what was your childhood dream? I'm just curious, a few of you, just yell it out. What was your childhood dream? Architect? Architect. Nice. Dinosaur? Dinosaur? You want to be a dinosaur? See, that's what I, that's, like, you're, like, way too mature back there for us. You're, like, architect. You're, like, total career. And I was with you. I I wanted to be, like, a superhero. I can't hear you. You wanted to be Captain Kirk? Nice. You wanted to be Ariel? Did you dye your hair red? You wanted to? You want to be a Jedi? You wanted to be a Jedi. That's awesome. <laughs> you will be a Jedi. Okay. Indiana Jones? You wanted to be Jay Kim? Now, now, who doesn't want to be Jay Kim? Pretty much. Well, tonight we're kicking off this series Dreaming Wide Awake. And I'm really excited because I I honestly believe, I, I won't say this about much of the things we do, Um, But this is one that I'd encourage you, this is a six-part series, would you just commit the next six weeks of being here, journey with us, whether you're new or been around, uh, and I know it's sometimes like, hey, I I make it every third week or whatnot, Uh, but this is one of those series that we long to be uh, formative and transformational for us as a community. I believe God's going to do some cool things. And so for the next six weeks, if you would just join us uh, as we dive into this idea of Dreaming Wide Awake. Let me pray, and we'll uh, get going. Jesus, thank you for this moment. Thank you for the moment of worship to sing to the God who is actively pursuing us. And so we ask that in this moment we would hear from you, that you would speak clearly to our hearts. And it wouldn't just be a moment where we hear from you, but it'd be a moment where we respond to you. Make us a people, God, that respond to what you say to our hearts. We ask that you would speak loud and clear to us tonight in Jesus name. Amen. Do you remember? Uh, maybe you still have this happen from time to time. I don't have it happen as near as much, but do you remember when you had one of those dreams that when you woke up, you thought it was real? Remember that? Do you, do, I don't know if you remember the very first time that happened, but I remember the very first time that happened to me—that when I woke up and I thought my dream actually happened. Uh, I was about five or six years old, and, and in the dream, I was in the bathtub playing with uh, action figures. I know crazy dream, you know. But, but like for a five or six year old, this was amazing. I had one like brand new action figure, you know. I had my superheroes and my G.I. Joes. Anybody G.I. Joes? Okay. All right. <laughs> and, and it was just, you know, the bubbles were just perfect. The, the water was amazingly warm, but not too warm, not too cold, you know. And I remember like waking up the next day and looking down to where my toys were and looking for the one action figure. I'm going, where to go? Because I was so stoked that I got this one particular superhero. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I run to the bathroom. And I check, and I'm looking for it. I'm t- where is it? And I begin to tear up my room looking for it. And then I did what any normal 5-year-old or 6-year-old would do. I ran frantically throughout the house, screaming at the top of my lungs, where is my Wonder Woman. My mom had to sit me down. I mean, this is, had to sit me down, comfort me because I didn't have a Wonder Woman action figure. I was visibly distraught and broken up. I was so stoked. I mean, back in the day, Wonder Woman was five, six-year-old. She was pretty awesome. And uh, I, God gave me 15 years later an amazing Wonder Woman. I was going for that, by the way. <laughs> But it's true. But I thought for sure the reality was I had this new Wonder Woman action figure, and I woke up to only to realize it was just a dream. It's just a dream. It wasn't real, there, there was nothing there. No matter how it felt, it, just, it was just a dream. And we ask this question a lot. In a lot of different ways, but what's the dream for your life? What dream do you have for your life? When we're kids, we ask it, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And some say astronaut or architect or Indiana Jones. (laughs) And then we get older, we ask this question a little bit more sophisticated, don't we? We ask the question, uh, what's your five-year goal for your next five years? What's the end game? Where do you want to be? And our answer varies from a lot of different things. A lot of times it's having the perfect house or the perfect job of, you know, being on the right trajectory and thinking those are going to be the answers to some of the deep problems or emptiness of life, Um, having the perfect mate. And then something happens along the way. We begin to realize that the perfect spouse, if you're married, you realize there are no perfect spouses. And so that dream is immediately shattered. And then you get into what you think is your ideal dream job, and you realize there's problems with every job, and you don't have a perfect job, and you realize it was just a dream. It was just an idea. You thought it was out there, but it wasn't really real. And, and what ends up happening is I think I think. That question and that longing, that dream should point us to a bigger question, maybe a better question, but what ends up happening is we begin to actually move backwards. We go, well, if that isn't really attainable, then we just settle for mediocrity, apathy. In fact, the mantra, eventually, if you move far enough down the road, is, you know what, just lower your expectations and you'll be happier. Settle for less. And something happens along the way when you start idealistic and you have all these dreams in your heart and then you begin to hit these realities that, okay, that's not really real. And then you just stop dreaming altogether. And see, the better question that we should be asking, though what's the dream of your life, is a good question. The bigger question it should point us to is this. What's God's dream for your life? I mean, I mean, have you ever thought about that? Have you stepped back and just kind of thought, what is God's dream for your life? We just sang about this high, amazingly holy God who's good and whose focused attention on you and attitude towards you is 100% love. Could it be? Could it be that his dream for you is actually bigger and better than your dream for you? Could it be that he actually has plans for your life and longs to do things in and through you that you couldn't even imagine, that are beyond even your capacity? If you began to shift the question and began to, instead of just thinking about these dreams, but began dreaming wide awake and saying, God, what is the dream you have for me? and begin to step into that, because that's what it means to dream wide awake. To stop being limited by your own capabilities and your own limitations and dreams, and step into the reality of the God, like we said last week, who is able. Could it actually be that when we were younger, we weren't actually dreaming too big, but we were dreaming too small, because our dreams ended with us? And God says, I want to blow those out of the water. See, the question we want to ask and answer for the next few weeks in this series is, what is God's dream for your life? How, how do you discover God's dream for your life? Because if you discover that, it will lead you on an adventure like never before. And Now, we'll, I'll hit this in a little bit later, Don. No. It, it, it will be uncomfortable, it will be hard. But see, when you begin to ask this, and you see, dreaming wide awake, Jay said it a little bit earlier, is when you embrace a God-sized vision for your life. When you're dreaming wide awake, you embrace not just your own vision for your life, but a God-sized vision for your life. And here's what this does. This is what this does, is it begins to fuel your life with purpose and clarity, You begin to actually live for things that are actually bigger than yourself. Imagine that. It begins to renew passion in your life. See, think about this you were placed on this planet for a purpose. And the dreams you have for your life, though are good, pale in comparison to the purposes of God for your life. And he longs to use you in a significant way. If you would stop and just simply say, God, what is your dream for me? What is your plan? I long to hear from you because you're the God of the universe and you are good. And you're all wise and you made me and you know my gifts, skills, and passions and you want to do something in me and through me that I couldn't even imagine. So what is your dream for my life? See, the question that we, we have to answer is that what is your God-sized vision for your life. How do we discover that? How do we develop that? How do you experience God's dream for your life? And we're going to dive into this book. It's it's the book of Nehemiah. It's actually the last historical book in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. And we're going to discover a guy who's an ordinary guy who began... A journey, and God did something in his heart, and we'll, we're going to discover it in tonight, where he was stepped into God's dream, and God used him in ways that were way beyond what he could have ever imagined. His name's Nehemiah. Before we dive in, I want to give you a little history on this, and if you will check in your notes, and you got the Slide behind me. Let me give you a little bit of the historical context because the book of Nehemiah uh, is, takes place around 445 B.C. And the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, are, are currently in what they call exile. Uh, they're, they're away from home. And let me tell you how they got to be in exile and where they're at. They're in exile under the Persian rule. And, and if you'll you just look up here, if you back it up, about 500 years... Uh, at one point, Israel was one of the superpowers in the world, uh, and they have what is known as the United Kingdom, uh, and this is where there's actually 12 tribes uh, of Israel, and all 12 tribes were gathered in one common, uh, under one common king, and it began with King Saul and then King David, who is most uh, famous, Solomon, his son, uh, and we saw this united kingdom where there was great prosperity uh, and, and great um, advancement as far as the kingdom. What happened is that Solomon's son got a little power hungry, got a little greedy, and took some unwise advice from some friends. And he began to tax and load the people and burden the people harshly. So you saw a split. And so right after Solomon's kingdom, his son, you saw a split where he had now a northern kingdom, Israel. And the northern kingdom uh, was known as Israel. And there's 10 tribes to that. And the capital was Samaria. Uh, and the southern kingdom is named uh, Judah. And there's only two tribes to that. And the capital was Jerusalem. Uh, and about 722, the invasion by the Assyrians actually ended the northern kingdom completely. Uh, and what happened here is then uh, Judah continued on for about another couple hundred years, and, and then there is an invasion by the Babylonians. And there is this promise and kind of foreshadowing of God, actually all the way back uh, when Moses was writing uh, and saying that if you will follow my commands, I, I will pu- I will gather you together. But if you disobey me, I will scatter you. And what happens is. Israel loses their heart for God. They're indoctrinated by all the different religions of the land. And God says, great, have your way. They're taken over by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. And yet there's these prophecies, these foretellings of that in 70 years, God would bring his people back into the promised land. And so for 70 years, they're exiled. And what happened when Babylon came in is, is the, what they did is they actually took the brightest, the best, and the nobility and carried them all off uh, to Babylon and began to indoctrinate them in the ways of the land and, and the culture. And this is the time when, if you know uh, the background of the Bible at all, this is the time when the stories uh, of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and also uh, Esther uh, happened in this time. Here's what's interesting, though. It just so happened that just about 70 years after they were in captivity, in bondage, in exile, Persia, this little country, and it's really cool if you ever want to study history, Persia takes over the Medes, and so is the Medo-Persian Empire, and then they actually become strong enough, and they take on the number one superpower at the time, Babylon, and take them over. Just so happens, just about 70 years after Israel was exiled after Judah was in exile, and what the Persian king to bring stability to his land did, he took all the exiles and said, "You can go home if you want, go back and reestablish uh, your religion and all those things." And so we see, actually, in 538 BC, the first beginning of exiles from Persia returning back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel in 538. You uh, began, and when Babylon came in, they destroyed the temple. And the walls and everything is left, and Jerusalem was completely destroyed. So they begin to restore the temple. There's great enthusiasm, but they experienced a lot of opposition. And then Ezra came in and brought about a spiritual renewal where people's hearts began to be uh, come back to God. And he brought another crew with him. And then we'll see in the book of Nehemiah, as we're going to study over the next few weeks, is that he returns in 445 B.C. and rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem, which allowed them to have protection and allowed them to actually have a common way of life in the land and brought about spiritual renewal. So that's the historical context that we're going to be reading. It's really important. You'll see as we dive into the text in just a bit, the book is named Nehemiah after the principal character. Nehemiah, his, it's his memoirs, if you will. It's it's really an intimate portrayal of, of a man journeying and wrestling. It's like reading his journal entries of, of how he's processing his time and what God's doing in his life, and, and stepping out on this great adventure. Of when he's beginning to embrace this God sized vision for his life, and you can see the tension, you see the process, and it's an amazing book. In modern day terms, uh, well, first this Nehemiah held the highest rank. Uh, That a foreigner could in the land. He was cupbearer to the king. Uh, Cupbearer wasn't just the guy who tasted the wine, and he wasn't just the guy that made sure that the king didn't die from someone poisoning them. The the cupbearer was also just a a position in the land where he was the counsel and confidant to the king. He He had the ear to the king. Think about this, and if we just put it in modern times, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a highly successful businessman He's at the top of his industry, living what we would outwardly say, the life. He had power, prestige, influence, and wealth. For all we know, Nehemiah never had been to Jerusalem. He had grown up in captivity. And yet something took place that moved him to embrace a God-sized vision for his life all the way back in Jerusalem. And let's, if you got your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah 1, and let's take a look at what that was. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalia, In the month of Kislev, that's about late November, December, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We see in this short little text this interchange. A guy who has the life, who's... who's, living in the lap of luxury, has the ear to the most powerful person on the planet ask one question that wrecks his world. And in that moment is birthed a God-sized vision. We're going to unpack the rest of it where you'll see it, but in this moment, asking, daring to ask one great question, and then allowing his heart to connect with the reality of what's going on. God birthed a God-sized vision in his heart. Now let me give you a word of warning. It's right at the bottom of your notes there. The word of warning is when dreaming wide awake, if you embrace a God-sized vision for your life, here's what it means. Dreaming wide awake, calling, your calling trumps comfort. You just need to know it. I just need to be honest with you right up front. Your calling will trump your comfort if you're going to step into the God-sized vision for your life because it's going to move you beyond your comfort zone to what God has called you to do. It's going to be, move you on before where you think is safe to where God is inviting you to. See, embracing God's dream for your life will inevitably disrupt your dreams for your life. And to experience his plan, you must lay down your plan. When dreaming wide awake, calling trumps comfort. Well, how did Nehemiah get to the point that his calling trumped his comfort? You just think about it. I mean, he was living the life. He had it good. He he began to, his heart began to break for a, a place that he'd never even been. How did he get to that place? Because I think if we can answer that question, we might be able to get to that place ourselves as we live in the lap of luxury here. And though it seems thousands of years ago we share much in common with where Nehemiah was at. How you discover? a God-sized dream for your life? I don't know if you noticed, but Nehemiah asked a great question. And actually, I think there's two questions and a prayer. That if you begin to ask these two questions and you begin to pray this prayer, God will birth a vision that is bigger than you could ever dream. In fact, you'll begin to experience his dream for your life. First question, it's on the back of your notes there. What problem has gripped my heart? What problem, what issue, what reality has gripped my heart? Did you notice, just go back, you don't, don't have to put it up there, but just go back into the text here. Do you notice the problem that gripped Nehemiah's heart? And just look at it. He said he began to question them about the Jewish remnant. That's the people of God, the people that are returning back. And then he asked them about Jerusalem the place of God's dwelling. The problem that gripped his heart was all about God's people and God's fame and renown. He was so concerned with that and when he heard the reality, he was broken. He wept. It gripped him. Just think about that. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. What problem has so gripped your heart that you weep about it, that you just sit and you're just broken about? What problem has gripped my heart? See, this is a double-edged sword question because as I began to think about this question, it was, it was really a diagnostic question for me. Because I realized the problems that grip my heart oftentimes are pretty petty and small. Hmm. I mean, just if I'm really honest and I'll try to be with you tonight, the problem that gripped my heart this last week was the lines at Safeway. <laughs> Running in with my kids after school, and I'm in a hurry, and all I have is two items. That's it. And why I did two this way, I don't know. But <laughs> I just had two items, and, and, and I, I'm holding them, and the line's so long. Even the like self-checkout line, I'm just going, why do you go so slow? Eventually, I just put the two items back and leave. <laughs> like, how lame is that? that that's the problems that grip my heart this week, the traffic and driving. And then I begin to move to, well, what should be gripping my heart? What should be the things that I start weeping about? See, when you ask this question, if you have the courage to ask the question the way Nehemiah did, because the reality is, is he didn't have to ask the question. He could have stayed on the surface. His brother shows up, and he's like, man, it's so good to see you. Let's hang out. Let's do stuff. But he dove a little bit deeper and asked a question that, that brought in the real reality of the moment, would you have the courage to ask the question? What problem grips my heart? See, the the principle underneath this is every God-sized vision is always birthed in the tension of what should be in light of what is. In the tension of what should be when you look around at the world and your place of work and your school and around you, you go, this should not be. See, the God-sized vision is going to be birthed when you look at it and go, no, 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 this is the way it should be. This is the way life was meant to be in light of the reality of what currently is. Let's start on a macro scale. Just think about this. Human trafficking. There's 27 million approximately people that are human slaves today, more than has ever been on the face of this planet. And yet I I walk unaware of that reality, or I'm kind of aware, but I just push it away because I don't allow my heart to be gripped to the point where I weep, gripped to the point that I realize that the mass majority, the average age of those that are stuck in slave trading, are 12 years old, and they're just impersonal out there, and I keep it at a distance because it hurts. I want to stay in my safe comfort zone. I don't want to allow that to penetrate my heart. I don't want my heart to get penetrated with the vast reality that 30,000 people, today. They died because of preventable diseases like unclean water. See, see, we don't want to ask this question because it brings an awareness and it and in and, and reality it, it overwhelms us. You we go, well, I can't I can't handle that. But what about a little bit closer to home? What about the one million people that live in San Jose that are lost and dying apart from their Savior, who desperately need to hear the good news that Jesus loves them, came and died for them, and they need to experience the Savior? And we walk past them every day at our coffee shop, at our workplace, and we haven't allowed the reality that they're lost and hurt and needing of a savior to grip our hearts to the moment that we weep for them. See, a God-sized vision is birthed in the reality of what should be in light of what is. That where you begin to get this moral conviction that what should be must be and you will not stop until it happens. Come on, church. I know this is a tough question. I do. I know it's a convicting question. I know it's an overwhelming question. But if we're going to be the church God has called us to be, if we're going to see him answer the longing of our heart that we'd awaken this generation to a new life, we have to be gripped with the problems of today to the point that we weep. You ever ask that question, what problem grips the heart of God? You know what, what? What is his heart beating for? Luke fifteen. There's these three parables that all tell one story. It's the parable of the lost sheep, and then the lost coin, and then the lost son. And it ends all three of those parables in this way. It says there'll be greater joy and rejoicing in a party thrown in heaven over one sinner who repents, one person who's far from God and returns to him, then 99 who righteous people who are just around. He says, I am the God who goes after those who are lost and last and least. I am the God who pursues them, and would we be the one who our hearts begin to pursue them because it's on God's heart? Now, we'd ask this question in a way that isn't just like... Yeah, what problem has gripped my heart? What problem has gripped God's heart? Would we re- wrestle with the reality of what currently is and be the ones who say, This should not be? And God, I will step forward if you will show me. Second question. is my heart completely his? The first begins to birth a God-sized vision inside of you. You'll begin to experience his purpose and plan for your life. But to accomplish it, the second is necessary. See, this is the condition for those who dream wide awake. Is my heart completely His? Notice what it says in Second Chronicles 16.9. I mentioned it last week. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. See, the answer to this question is what moved Nehemiah from comfort to calling. It's when you go, you know what? My heart is fully yours that you go, okay, what you're calling me to is greater than my own comfort. So the question to you and I, is my heart completely his? Because the principle underneath this question is simple. You know it. If you've been around, you you hear it, but maybe you need to embrace it. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things whose hearts are fully his. See, God isn't saying, get perfect and then I'll use you. Figure it all out. He's saying, when you do this, he says, no, no, no. If you just simply give me your heart, just wait and see what I long to do in and through you. The famous evangelist, D.L. Moody, who I happened to go to the school, Moody Bible Institute. In the 18th century, he was sitting down talking to a man, and this, this man said to him, the world is yet to see what God can do through one man whose heart is fully his. D.L. Moody walked out of that meeting, and he said, I aim by God's grace to be that man the world is yet to see what a, a man or woman who surrenders their heart to God and say God you have it all what he longs to do in and through you and church by his grace may we be that church let me ask maybe this question a little differently What's keeping your heart from being fully his? I mean, what is it that's holding you back from him? Would you have the courage to identify that and then give it to him? I don't know what it is. It might be a relationship. It might be fear. Yeah, you're going, well, I I don't know. If I I really say, God, I'm all yours, I don't know what's going to happen, yeah? What is it that's keeping you from saying, I'm all yours? Two questions and a prayer. The prayer. The prayer is a dangerous prayer. It is the invitation For God to break your heart for the things that break His. Simple prayer, you probably have heard it. Lord, break my heart for the things that break yours. problem is if you start praying it, He will actually do it. And you'll begin to see your world differently. Your heart will begin to break for your coworkers. Your heart will begin to break for your family. Your heart will begin to break for people you don't even know. Your heart will begin to break. It's a dangerous prayer because it will lead you on a journey where God is leading and you are not. But it is the prayer that as you pray that prayer in earnest to God, not only will you embrace, but you will experience God's dream for your life. Because in that moment when you begin to pray that prayer, He will begin to shape your heart after His heart. You'll begin to see people the way he sees them. Your heart will begin to hurt and bleed and beat after his heart to the point where you can't help but respond the way God would respond. See, a dangerous prayer, Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. I don't know if you noticed in the text where it said, for some days I mourned And he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Do you know how long some days is? Because we actually have some textual markers in there. Because it talked about the month of Kislev and where we're at. And at the end of this chapter, it gives us another textual marker. It was three to four months where he sat with it. He allowed the depravity of the people of God and the place of God to wrap and wreck his heart, where he sat and wept and prayed to the point where God could no longer, where he could no longer just simply be satisfied with living comfortable in the citadel of Susa, the winter capital for the province of Asia or Persia. Would would you pray a dangerous prayer? Would you have the courage to sit with it, to not just say, okay, I'm going to pray this prayer tonight and that was good. Here's my calling, here's my invitation. We have a little card in your notes. And it just says dreaming wide awake. And we actually we actually spent money on this because it's important, had it printed up nice so that you wouldn't just throw it away. And it's got the 2 Chronicles 16, 9 verse at the top. And then underneath it, it says, Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And would you put it somewhere? And during this entire series for the next six weeks, would you daily pray that prayer? I dare you. Would you have the courage to pray that prayer and begin to allow God to do the work necessary in you? We will not become the church we dream of and long to be and that God longs to use in this city unless we start here individually, you and I, allowing our hearts to line up and beat with the heart of God. Just imagine. If we, if we begin to pray this prayer, just imagine what God would want to do in your family. You begin to have a God-sized dream for your family, your house, and God says, dream for your neighborhood and for your workplace and for your school. I mean, what would would God want to do through you? Just imagine what what God would want to do through a church that collectively prayed this prayer. Imagine what this high school campus, how God could change this campus. Because it was a church meeting here that prayed a dangerous prayer and stopped going through the motions and capitulating to apathy and said, No, we are going to live wide awake. We're going to be a church that dreams wide awake. We're going to embrace a God sized vision and move from comfort to calling. Just imagine. Just imagine what God wants to do in this generation here, in this city. May we be that church. By God's grace, may we be that church. Let's pray. God, I, I confess. I confess that what I'm concerned with often is far too petty and far too focused on me. God, would you give us the courage to respond to what you're speaking to us and how you're leading us as a community and individually. And we pray collectively, Lord, break our hearts to the point where we hurt for the needy, where we weep for the things you weep about, that we would see our neighbors and friends and city and school and workplaces the way you see them. And it wouldn't just be an emotion, but it would be an emotion that leads to your loving kindness and action. Break our hearts for the things that break yours.